Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Resilient Faith. If you're just joining us, that's the title of our Lent 2021 sermon series. And in this series, we have been exploring what it looks like to deepen our trust in Christ and grow our faith to withstand trials, challenges, and the storms of life, to develop the grit, the adaptability, and the resilience of our Lord Jesus. For obvious reasons, we've created a Lenten series with this past year in mind, as we've all experienced in one form or another, the past 12 months have been jolting. It's been sort of like CrossFit for the soul, right? And think about that. That's rather appropriate. CrossFit, get it? Some of you will get it later. I think CrossFit's appropriate. Think about it. CrossFit is a strength and conditioning workout that is done at a high-intensity level. It's effective and painful because it's all about muscle confusion. Did you know this? Muscle confusion. The idea with that is that if you quickly and repeatedly change your workout, you can shock your muscles and achieve better results, making you leaner, stronger, faster, and so forth. Basically, by stimulating and shocking the muscle, you break its training habit or its automatic response to exercise. I experienced a a version of this a few years ago when I did P90X for about six months. That was until I hurt my, my shoulder, my trap muscle, and it started spasming for a couple of days. It was very painful. And then my son was born, and then I didn't do P90X anymore. And so now my muscles get shocked anytime I attempt to exercise. And some of you will relate to that. But seriously, think about it. Our, our trials, our challenges, and suffering in life are a lot like that. And while it can be painful, it is often the way that God does new things. It's the way God shocks and strengthens our spiritual and religious muscles and builds faith that is more resilient and rooted in his love instead of what we think that we can do on our own. It's rooted in his love and his goodwill for our lives and for our church. So we began our series by looking at some of the metaphors, you'll remember, that the scriptures use to describe how God shapes us and our faith through trials and hardships. Metaphors like metallurgy, right, purifying gold, forging metals with fire, clay in the hands of the potter, and of course the wilderness, which is what Jesus experienced out in the desert and what we give attention to every Lent. Therefore, I invited us to see and embrace our own wilderness as an opportunity to build character, to grow our endurance, and to thrive on the other side of it all. 
And then last week, we looked at how Jesus shows us that you can't build resilient faith unless you learn to resist temptation and evil. I said that the New Testament reveals that we have three enemies that should be resisted. That would be the world, our flesh, our sinful nature, and the devil. And so if we want to follow Jesus and grow in our walk, especially through difficult seasons, then we must engage in spiritual warfare through prayer. Which brings us to today's message. The third installment in our Resilient Faith series, a message I've entitled, The Necessity of Lament. The Necessity of Lament. Father, speak to us now through your Holy Spirit, for your servants are listening. In reading the Old Testament, it's easy to see that the Exodus and the wilderness period was no doubt the most formative event in the life of Israel. The Babylonian exile would be the next big one. And certainly both events were used to teach God's people about Himself, to clarify their calling and identity, and to shape their theology, their faith, and how they lived in the world. I mean, think about it. Had you gone through the Exodus, and that was in your history, you would never forget it. It would forever shape the identity of who you are and who your people are. And that's what it was for Israel. But remember, that journey was full of ups and downs. It was full of twists and turns, faith and unbelief. In fact, the story of deliverance got off to a rough start, if you'll recall. You'll recall that Pharaoh eventually agreed to release all of the Hebrew slaves after Yahweh had proved his power over the gods of Egypt. But not long into the Exodus, the king of Egypt decides that he's made a mistake and he wants his slaves back. And so he goes after them. And then God's people find themselves trapped between Pharaoh's army and what? The Red Sea. Exodus 14, verses 10 through 12 says, And Pharaoh approached. The Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in the desert. Now, church, what are your first thoughts when you read this passage? Right, because we're on the other side of this, and, and usually we're kind of like, how dare they? I mean, don't they believe God? Don't they trust in God? Here they are complaining. God's trying to deliver them, and they're complaining. Maybe you're thinking that. I don't know. Notice three things here. Notice this. Look at this passage. Number one, notice how fear, even when the change is good or potentially good, distorts our view of the past. Doesn't it? What do we call that? We call it the good old... I know you're wearing masks, but you can still talk. The good old days. Yeah, and that's what they were thinking. So notice that, how fear distorts our view of the past. Number two, look at this. You can be comfortable in your captivity. You can be comfortable in your captivity when you see that it 
it's going to require some effort to escape it. You can be comfortable in your captivity. And then three, notice that this is the beginning of a pattern of grumbling and of faithless complaints. Now, I want to distinguish faithless complaints from faithful complaints. We know that grumbling and complaining aren't normally good things, right? I mean, typically we hear that. Don't grumble, don't complain. Those aren't good things. They're not the sort of thing that worshipers of God and followers of Jesus ought to be doing. Whether you're reading about the constant whining and unbelief of the Hebrews during the Exodus, or you're reading Paul in Philippians. Take, for example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, Paul says, My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Paul says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Now notice, look what this is a quote. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Look at verse 15. What do you think Paul's talking about? He's actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, which is from Moses' song about the disbelieving generation that didn't live to see the promised land. You'll recall that they had to wander around in the wilderness until their kids who didn't remember Egypt, who, who weren't trapped in old ways of thinking, and who had cultivated a faith in the wilderness that prepared them for a new season, were ready to inherit the land. And it's this wilderness that Jesus, notice, is symbolically reliving as he embodies Israel his 40 days in the desert. 40 years, Israel wandered. 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness. That's how we must see what Jesus is doing in the Judean wilderness. But instead of repeating the mistakes of God's people with their faithless whining, grumbling, and complaining, their faithless demanding of signs and miracles that God is with them, Jesus becomes the faithful Israelite, the one who gets from the wilderness what is to be gotten. He gets from the wilderness what is to be gotten so that he can become the sort of Messiah the Father has called him to be and to lead others to the promised land. You see what's happening here? Therefore, as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus passed through the baptismal waters of the Jordan. This is what every gospel writer has in mind. When Jesus comes up out of the water, they are envisioning the people of Israel passing through the waters of the Red Sea. And then what does Jesus do? He goes into the wilderness. Except Jesus, unlike Israel, would resist temptation. Jesus, unlike Israel, would build a resilient faith that enabled him to carry out a three-year ministry that was pleasing to God the Father before dying on the cross, which is when Jesus finally, listen to this, voices his own complaints to God the Father. And he does so by quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. A chapter in Psalm that we normally think of as a messianic 
psalm. This is what Jesus said. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In Aramaic, Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You imagine Jesus screaming this from the cross. Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Psalm 22 is known as a lament psalm. Lament psalms make up, listen to this, 40% of the psalms. 40%. Now get on CCLI, and that's what it's called, like the, the big worship website. Look at all the top 100 worship songs and see how many lament songs are in there. <laughs> My guess is not very many. And there are other laments throughout Scripture, most heavily in books like Job, which we looked at in Advent, Jeremiah, Lamentations, which we heard from this morning. But the book of Psalms is the prayer and song book for Jews. And so this is where Jesus goes to express his own feelings of abandonment and what was his greatest moment of darkness and despair. Folks, Jesus was human. And this is important to note. You see, when when Jews quoted the first verse of a psalm, they were evoking the entire passage. You see, they didn't have to say the whole passage for other Jews to know, oh, that's what he's talking about. That, that chapter in Psalms. So pay attention then to the flow of Psalm 22 and the rhythm of this biblical lament. If you look at verse 3 through 5, it says this, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. So Jesus makes this complaint, says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and delivered them. You delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The psalm goes on. Verse 11, we hear a petition. Do not be far from me, God, for trouble is near and there is no one to help me. Then a vow of praise in verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. And then verse 27 and 28, a view of the future hope and the end goal is in mind in this lament. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. This is Jesus' lament. Beginning with faithful complaints and ending in blessed assurance. Don't miss this, church. In Jesus' darkest moments, while he certainly voiced his faithful complaint and revealed the depth of despair that he felt upon the cross, he also trusted the Father. He called upon the Father for help. He praised the Father for his faithfulness. And he expressed a hope in what was to come. Which is why, as the author of Hebrews wrote these words. It'll sound familiar to some of you. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. You see, Jesus saw what was on the other side. 
And so Jesus could complain faithfully and believing that there was hope. Church, this is true lament, true lament. Whatever the world does, this is what the Bible says for us to do. Listen to what Sungshan Ra writes in his book, Prophetic Lament. He says, laments are prayers of petition arising out of need. But lament is not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, nor merely the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response. Right? This is what, this is, meaning this is what the people of God do. When things like this happens, this is how we liturgically respond. It is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through lament. And look, if we're honest, many of us avoid this kind of lament, right? I mean, lamenting feels like acknowledging defeat. And that just doesn't fit the American spirit of triumphalism that we're taught, which of course leaves no room for holding grief and celebration together. Grief and celebration together. So we either want to live in one ditch or the other. Because we live in a culture that doesn't understand the value of grieving and lamenting and how it enables us to be fully human and get in touch with God and allow God to do something in our lives. To come to the end of ourselves and realize we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Unfortunately, the church hasn't led the way very well because we've often, too often, succumbed to this spirit, right? we, We fail to hear Jesus say, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. So we don't properly lament, and it leads to all kinds of spiritual malformation and sometimes depression because we don't properly lament. In fact, I think it's a lack of biblical lamentation that leads a church to either be down in the dumps and cynical all the time, since there's no shortage of injustices in the world, right? Or a church that wants to ignore the suffering of the world and just sing happy songs, preach happy sermons, and think happy thoughts all the time. Folks, these are both extremes. They're both extremes, and neither of them reflect the gospel and our biblical hope. Therefore, we need to practice biblical lament. Psalm 13 is a classic lament psalm. I'd like us to use this psalm as an example of what healthy lament looks like and how it can build resilient faith. Let's look at that. The psalmist says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Listen to how the psalmist pours out the depths of his despair in a faith-filled complaint to God. He feels forgotten by God. It's this image of a broken relationship, of separation and distance. Where are you, God? There's pain there, there is sorrow, there is loss, and for the psalmist, there is no end in sight. Can you relate to that? And the enemy seems to be winning. 
Look at verse 3. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. These two verses, the writer protests how God appears to be managing the world. God, you're falling down on the job. You're overlooking the faithful ones. What about me, God? What did I do to deserve this? Look at me. Speak. It's now or never, God. Help me or I will die from this pain. I mean, folks, hear the indignation. Hear the anger. Hear the feeling of being unfairly treated. All of these feelings are bubbling up within the psalmist. This is a plea for help. And listen, this isn't disrespectful. This is honesty. And God wants our honesty. Because part of being honest, because God already knows how you're feeling anyway, is for you to be honest with yourself. And it's representative of the real struggle of faith in a world full of competing wills, full of rebellious, sinful human beings, as well as spiritual attacks from the enemy, to lament and grieve what is lost. And notice he expresses them, them to God. He expresses them to God, not, not to those who he feels has wronged him. He's not going down the street and telling it to his neighbors, you know. He tells it to God because he believes God is the one who can do something about it. You see, because a lament is about asking God to bring about change, and God is the one that brings about change. A lament is not just about venting our feelings, nor does it stop with complaint or accusation with God. <laughs> well, think about if it did stop, stop with that just with complaint and accusation. If it did, how would it be any different than those lobbed, lobbed by the accuser who came to God about Job? So we lament, we get honest and raw with God, but it doesn't stop there. Yes, be honest, but also remember who you're talking to and exercise your faith. As we'll see now, the psalm doesn't end in despair. Because if it did, it wouldn't be a true lament. Look at verse 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Did you see what happened? Faith entered the picture between verses 4 and 5. And we have no reason to believe that the writer's circumstances have changed. Yet something enables the psalmist to say, I trust you, you are loving, you saved me once, and you'll save me again. This is biblical lament. This is resilient faith. And Jesus offers it to us this morning. You see, church, a true lament speaks to God as the divine therapist. And by the end of the session with our divine therapist, we can say, I've done what you asked me to do. I spilled my guts. I told you what I'm really thinking and feeling. And I believe those things are now in good hands because I believe that you're a good God. God. 
I believe that you will listen because you love me. And it's because of your love that I keep bringing these complaints to you, that I will keep singing your praises, and that I will remember how good you've been to me. I bring them to you, God. You see, folks, biblical lament concludes on a note of confidence and hope, trust, and joy. This is the power of our faith of which the world does not understand. And, notice this, this pattern, in this pattern of lament, which we saw in Psalm 22 and we see in Psalm 13, is a pattern for our own lives of worship. We must lament properly and sufficiently, allowing the time needed to grieve. However, if grieving is all we do, and we never emerge and grow in cooperation with the Spirit, and we never experience and express confidence, hope, trust, and joy, then, brothers and sisters, we are not expressing faith. We've instead joined ranks with the warped and crooked, unbelieving generation that Paul spoke of in Philippians, that died in the desert because they were stubborn, because they refused to change, because they refused to adapt, because they refused to move on and believe in God's good future. And it's in that story that we hear this invitation. What will it be? Who will you be? Who will you be, church? To sum up why lament is necessary and why we need to develop a resilient faith, let's think of it this way. This may help you, right? If you're taking notes, this would be a good part to jot some things down. We need to practice lament if we're going to develop a a resilient faith. Why? Because number one, lament says this isn't right. Lament acknowledges something's broken. Something is wrong. Something is out of whack. It shouldn't be this way. You know, and as I said, God desires raw honesty. How are you feeling? Stop yapping to your neighbors and tell God about it. <laughs> right? And lament, lament says this isn't right. And that's being truthful. Because if we fail to recognize what's wrong, what's broken, what's unjust, and, and, and can't ever, we, we then can't ever hope to find healing for ourselves and be a part of God's ministry of healing to the world. Amen? And so this is why we need to say that. This isn't right. Number two, lament says, this hurts, but I'm not quitting. Can you say that with me? This hurts. There you go. Lamenters talk to God because ultimately the problem can only be worked out in dialogue with God. So rather than taking a time out or abandoning ship, we choose to lament. And consider this. When you feel like you're in exile, as much of the church in America does for multiple reasons, you have three choices. Give up, give in, or lament. Lastly, number three, we need to practice lament if we're going to develop a resilient faith because lament says, God, I need your help. God, Our church needs your help. Lament shows that we recognize our need for God's help. 
Lament allows God to meet us where we are so that he can then deliver us. Oh, that we would get to that place. I'm reminded of a scene from one of my favorite TV shows, The West Wing. Some of you may be familiar with this show. In one memorable episode, White House Chief of Staff Leo McGarry reaches out to his deputy, Josh Lyman, who is struggling with PTSD. And Leo tells him a parable. He says, this guy is walking down the street when he falls down a hole. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription and throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts, Father, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me out? And the priest writes out a prayer and throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. The guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before. And I know the way out. You know, when I first heard Leo share this parable when I was watching the show, I immediately thought of Jesus. Hey, Jesus, can you help me out? Folks, this is Jesus. Jesus is the one who slides down in the hole and says, I've been down here before, but I know the way out. <laughs> I know the way out. And then I thought of this passage from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives to the fear of dying. Verse 17, therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer up a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. Hallelujah. Finally, as I begin to conclude this message, I want to invite you to ask yourself, what do I need to lament in order to develop a more resilient faith? What do I need to lament in order to develop a more resilient faith? With what things from the past year do you need to say this? This isn't right. This hurts but I'm not quitting. And lastly, God, I need your help. With those things in mind, I want to invite you, church, to express your lament to God in response to the hearing of his word this morning. Let's do that in a responsive reading of Psalm 13. Would you join me in this? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Amen.